Pope, I'm Pastor Trevor. Glad to see you all here, and for those of you joining us online of whom I cannot see, uh, but I trust you're there, uh, welcome as well. Um, as a reminder, we have our table talk um, class thing, the new thing that we started last month. Uh, second session meets today after the service, and that's open to anyone. So you don't have to read the book to uh, attend and to sit on the discussion and ask whatever questions you may have. You are welcome to come um, and sit with us. And again, that follows the service after the fellowship time up here in the sanctuary. Before we begin this morning's uh, message, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace, your patience and kindness towards us. We ask that you would forgive us our sins, that you would remember the sacrifice of your son, that you would see his righteousness, and in faithful keeping of your word, Father, that you would bless us this morning, that you would help us to hear your word, that you would sanctify us with your truth, and that you would help us to be edified, equipped, and sanctified this morning so that we can go out and glorify you in all that we do. Father, help us to be focused this morning. Help us not to be distracted, weighed down by the burdens, the worries, the anxieties of this world. Help us not to be distracted by the pleasures or the delights and the comforts that we may experience, but help us to hear your word and help us to submit ourselves to it appropriately. May your spirit convict us as needed. May your spirits open our eyes to see, our ears to hear. We ask this for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so our passage is 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have not uh, opened there yet, please go ahead and turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. If you need a Bible, we have some uh, underneath the seats uh, around you that you can grab. If you need to keep a Bible, please uh, keep one. <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter 5 tells of, a, of an event that is one of the more well-known um, accounts in the Old Testament. It's the account of Naaman, the Syrian commander who is a leper and who is cured from his leprosy. Uh, this chapter involves a wide range of people. It involves the kings of Israel and Syria, an Israelite slave girl. It involves a warring Gentile general. And along with all of those, we have the man of God, Elisha, and his servant, Gehazi. As we read this chapter and go through it, I want you to understand how simple it is to become clean in the eyes of Yahweh. How easy God has made it for you to be declared righteous before him. All the while understanding that we must not presume our righteousness before God on account of the company that we keep. So let's start out by reading the first five, five verses, verses 1 through 5 of 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him Yahweh had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of failure, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. 
So right here in the first five verses, we see the hand of God at work in Naaman's life. Even before he's converted, the sovereignty of God is in play. We have both Jews and Gentiles involved in this because, again, as we've talked about before, the sovereignty of God is not restricted, right? He is sovereign over all and over everything. Naaman's greatness here was due to Yahweh's will, due to Yahweh's providence. He is the one that granted Syria victory through Naaman. And then even this slave girl, the one that brings good news to Naaman, the one who is the messenger that allows her Naaman to hear the news that he needs to hear in order to be converted, she is a victim of an injustice, right? She is kidnapped, she's carried off from her land like the exiles were. And and, and note this, when 1st and 2nd Kings is compiled, it's during the time of the exile. Judah, Israel, they have already been carried off themselves into a Babylon. They themselves are exiles, and here they hear of this Israelite slave girl who also has been carried off, and what does she do for her master? What does she do for the one who has carried her off? She seeks to bless him. She doesn't seek cursing down upon him. She doesn't seek the works for him. No, she is seeking blessing. She wants to bless the city, the land, the master of which she is serving under. So she is an example to the very exiles who are also now in a foreign, distant land. So here we see the hand of God at work even before Naaman is converted. And even now in your life, God's hand is at work. Some of you believe and you have seen this, you know this, you understand this. Others of you don't believe. You struggle to understand this, but you need to understand that God is moving things. He has done things in your life so that you can hear his truth, receive his truth, know who he is. Even the evils and the injustices of this world, God uses for his glory. He will use it for good, and not just any good, but an eternal good, an everlasting good. Let's read verses 6 through 14 and see how Naaman is actually made clean. And Naaman brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see now, excuse me, see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. See, the king of Israel here, King uh, uh, Jerome, he's thinking as a king and as the faithless idolater king that he is. He's, even though he's had encounters with Elisha, he's not thinking anything along the lines of spiritual miraculous healing or even understanding what Elisha is able to do, he just thinks that Syria wants to go to war with him, which is, is, is partly true. Syria does not like Israel, and Syria probably would like to go to war with him, but not at this moment. And so King Jerome, he's concerned about this, but as we find out, Elisha, he steps in and intervenes. In verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. 
But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So here we have Naaman seeking cleansing. This great man, this great leader of God's enemies seeks cleansing. Why? Because he knows his condition. He knows his affliction. He's unable to cure himself. He's unable to cleanse himself. He has tried. He has gone to other people. No one has been able to heal him. So he seeks cleansing, and he's willing to go all the way to Israel to be cleaned. And this isn't uncommon, right? We would expect this. Somebody who's unclean, somebody who's dealing with affliction, would seek such things. It's the same today. Those who are unclean, they know that they are unclean. Those who are inflicted with an illness, with leprosy, they know there is something wrong with them. The addict knows that they have a problem. The alcoholic knows that their love for the bottle is unhealthy. The adulterer, the homosexual, the sexually immoral, they know that deep down there is something wrong and something is lacking in their life. The glutton, the sloth, and we could go on and on, but the point is this. The sinner knows that they are a sinner. The sinner knows for a time, at least until, as Romans 1 tells us, at least for a time before God hands them wholly over to the depravity, they know that what they are doing is wrong. Their conscience speaks against them. It speaks against you. You know what is lacking in your life. And some of you who are unclean, you're stuck in your sin, and you went out of it. You want to be cleansed. You're like Naaman. If only you could get this leprosy off of you. You want freedom from it, but you don't know how. You don't know what must be done. Or maybe you do. You know what must be done. You simply, to str- you simply struggle to believe that what must be done is actually true. Maybe you're even angry about it like Naaman was at first in verse 11. And maybe that frustration is in part what feeds the sin. You're overwhelmed by the weight, the burden, the debt, how you can't get away from the addiction, how you can't get away from the bottle, from the lust, from the temptations. And so as you continue to trip and fall over and over again in the temptation to the sin, you're just overwhelmed. And so you give in, and you think it's better to ignore the condition, to ignore the affliction, to numb your senses to the leprosy rather than to be cleansed when it's an easy, simple command. See, Naaman, he was seeking something more complicated as well, something harder, right? He comes before this great man of God, Elisha. He comes with his horses, his chariots, with his men, this great Syrian general who has kidnapped Israelites. He has, he's here before Elisha's house, and what does Elisha do? He stays in his house. He doesn't even come out and greet him. He doesn't even see him face to face. He sends a messenger out. It's, like, it's almost like he doesn't want to be bothered. He, he sends a messenger out with a simple command. Dip in the Jordan seven times. And the seven times, that's consistent with the Levitical law. If you read in Leviticus 14 of how a leper is to be treated according uh, to the law, seven is a number that comes up regularly. A bird must be offered to Yahweh, and the blood of the bird must be sprinkled seven times. The leper must live outside of his tent for seven days. He, uh, the priest must sprinkle oil before Yahweh seven times. But... Naaman, he gets his command. There's no show, there's no performance before him. 
There's no request for money. Elisha's not saying, hey, you must sow a seed with some money in order to be healed. Naaman's not sent on a long journey or an arduous quest over perilous mountains and barren deserts. Just a simple command. Go to the River Jordan, dip seven times, and you, your skin will be restored. That's it. That simple. And Naaman, he's like, but the rivers in Damascus, they are much more clean than the rivers here. No, the rivers in Israel can't compare to the purity, the quality of water that's in Damascus. So initially, Naaman is angry, but his servants in verse 13 says, look, you were willing to do something that was harder, that was more complicated. But here is this great man of God. And has he actually said, just go and be washed and be cleaned? Like, isn't that, that's good. So why not do it? And so upon their encouragement, he does. And, but that's the question. That's what we wrestle with. It can't be that simple, right? With all of our sins. See, with Naaman, sure, he had leprosy. But for our sin, for your sin, in your situation, it can't be that simple. That God would just make me clean. That he would just make me righteous. There's got to be more to it. And that's our tendency. We want to be involved somehow. We want some tangible process. We want some checklist that we can put our faith in when God's saying no. Put your faith in me. I got this. This is simple. It's a little surprise that we have seen over history the church unfaithfully add things or create things to the cleansing process. For example, the, the sinner's prayer. You have to say these words to be saved. That's all you have to do. And it's not that you can't say a prayer upon salvation, but to think that you must say these specific words or that this is the process of salvation that is wrong. Because what happens later when you're struggling with your doubts and you're like, ah, did I say the right words with the right tone, with the right sincerity? I mean, did I really mean it in that moment? Because right now, I don't feel like I meant it. I don't feel like I mean it right now. Or was I supposed to weep during that prayer? How, how, did I shed enough tears? Did, did I pray long enough? Did, did I keep my eyes closed, right? Was in the, in the right posture? And on and on we could go. We could do the same thing with altar calls. Did I go up soon enough? Or... Was it the third time through the song that I came up and it was actually too late and the pastor got it wrong? Did it really mean something? Or was I just emotionally coaxed to go on up and to, to do the altar call and to give my faith? Did it actually mean what I think it meant? Did I donate or sow the seed properly? Did I give enough money? How do I know that I am saved? Or any works righteousness? Like, for example, the seven blessed sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. I must do these things in order to be saved. You don't. If you say that I must do this, or because I have done this, thus I am saved, you are boasting in your works. You are stealing the glory that belongs to God. And that's what bothers us. Because we want glory. We want some say in it. And we want some confidence in ourselves that we are saved. But that's not how it works. We lean on these things because, again, the commands and truths of Scripture often at times are just too simple. They are too easy. And because of that, they often require more faith than what we think they do. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved. How have you been saved? By grace. Not by a prayer. Not by taking communion. Not by some priest absolving you of your sins. But by grace you have been saved. Through what? Faith. Faith. Not by works, through faith. No works of you. And Paul even goes on and talks about this. This is not your own doing. And that's where we struggle. 
This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Your salvation, the only thing you bring to your salvation is the need to be saved, right? Is your sin. The fact that you're in this mess. The fact that you are a leper and you need to be cleansed and God does the rest. You have no boasting in it. You can't say, well, I got my life together and God saved me. No, no, God saved you. He redeemed you. He didn't have to. You had no part in it except for the sin. All you did was confess your faith in Christ, and he delivered you from it. This is a salvation that is obtained by believing in Christ as the Son of God. John 3, 16, 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him, right? Note that. Whoever believes in him. No other qualifier. If you believe, if you're a human, you believe, whoever, you believe in him, you shall not perish but have eternal life. Right? No, no need for a prayer. No need to walk the aisle. No need to give money. No need to partake of the sacraments. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Again, in verse 18, whoever, no other qualifier other than belief, believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Later in Titus 3, 5 through 6, we're reminded again this is by grace purely, not by works. He saved us, it's God, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In other words, we receive the Spirit because of what Christ has done, not because you prayed a prayer, not because you partook of the sacraments, not because you faithfully came to church, but because you believe and trusted in Christ. You believed in the Son of Man, the Son of God, the one and only Jesus Christ. That's it. You did no work except the sin that you needed to be delivered from. Naaman here, when he goes to the river, note this. Elisha doesn't tell him that he needs to do anything before dipping in the River Jordan, right? He's just told, hey, go to the Jordan and dip seven times. All Naaman had to do was acknowledge the command, like, hear it and do it. Naaman didn't need to make an offering. Now, granted, he's a Gentile. He's not part of the Old Covenant community. So he didn't have to, like, offer um, an offering like the law would have required him to do. But all he had to do was present himself according to the word of Elisha and go to the River Jordan. Likewise, it's the same for you and I today. So wherever you are, regardless what you did last night, regardless of what you did this morning, or think of the most extreme, heinous sin you've committed in your life, you do not need to clean yourself up before you go to Christ. You do not need to clean yourself up before going to him seeking forgiveness, to shed the guilt. Because the thing is, you can't clean yourself up. All of our righteous works are like filthy rags before him. But Christ can clean us, and he will clean us. You simply must go to him and acknowledge your need for cleansing, like Naaman. I have a leprosy. I have a condition. I need help. Deliver me from this, O man of God. And Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, he will be faithful, and he will deliver you from your sin. This is how it's been since the day the church was birthed on Pentecost 2,000 years ago. In Acts 2, Peter, after being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he gives the first sermon. The people before him, he calls them out uh, on their murdering of the Son of God. He cuts them to the soul, and this is how they respond. Verse 37 to 41. 
Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? This is application, first application to, it, to the first Christian sermon, and every Christian sermon after that should be the application anyway. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Nothing here about repent, be baptized, and say this prayer with me. Or, and in a moment, we're going to have an aisle, you need to come on up. No, they're being baptized because they're saved. Because they have been washed by the Holy Spirit. They have confessed their sins. They're cut to the heart. They are convicted of their sins. They know they need to be cleansed. And they put their faith in Christ. Verse 39, For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about three thousand souls. This is why people are baptized, to show that they've been cleansed by the Spirit, by the grace of God, as the blood of Christ has allowed. It's not that baptism saves, but baptism is a reflection. It's a simple act of obedience to show both the church and the world the wonderful, miraculous, and even scandalous grace of God. The grace of God that's at work in the life of a sinner, in the life of a leper, in the life of an addict, an idolater, an alcoholic, who is now washed and no longer those things, but is clean, now has a new identity, is now in Christ. Like Naaman, who went into the river Jordan as a leper, he came out healed, but he didn't just come out healed, right? Like he didn't just go in and come out and then had like scars left over from the leprosy or had marks or that his skin was like that of of another man of his age. No, he goes in as a leper and he comes out with his skin like a little child. Right? And you know kids, I mean, they have like, kids just have great skin, right? Baby soft, smooth, it's hard to scratch. Like, it's winter now, my, my skin is dry. If I brush it up against a tennis ball, it gets scratched, right? It's not the skin of a little child. Naaman went in, he comes out, and he's better. It's the same for us. We go to Christ covered in our sins, and we walk away covered in his righteousness, right? We just don't go to Christ, and then it's like, your sins are removed. No, our sins are removed, and then his righteousness, his holy, perfect, never-ending righteousness is put on us. It cannot be soiled. It cannot be stained. We are better off than we were when we went in, and beyond, like way better, because our sins, they're forgiven, they're forgotten. Our sins, they're cast as far as the east is from the west. Now note how Naaman uh, responds to this restoration of his skin in verses 15 through 19. The Naaman returned to the, God, to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servants. But Elisha said, As Yahweh lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And Naaman urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. The Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but Yahweh. In this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servants. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, Yahweh, pardon your servants in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. 
So here, Naaman, he returns to Elisha, and he wants to give him money. I mean, think of all the money he brought, and Elisha, he faithfully refuses. For a man of God does not heal on account of cash flow, nor does he want the word to get around that he did receive money, lest people start thinking, well, he healed him because he gave him money. That's not how the prophets work. So Naaman then asks for dirt. And that might seem like an odd request, but I mean, people today, when they go to places of significance and they leave there, they often bring soil from those far lands. As a reminder, here Naaman probably is thinking of more of a, a sacred aspect of it, because there is no temple in Syria. There are no altars to Yahweh in his homeland. There are no Levitical priests that can do the work that he wants to do. So he has to build an altar, and he wants to take soil from the promised land to do so. Then Naaman, he puts forth a special and a rather interesting, but yet faithful request. He acknowledges, this, note who's acknowledging this, this Syrian commander, he's now calling Elisha, he's like, your servant, right? He's referring, Naaman's referring to himself as servant to this Israelite prophet, the Israelites whom he is constantly raiding. He's now acknowledging that their God, that Yahweh, he's the one true God. All the other gods are false gods. That includes the gods of his land. So he seeks forgiveness when he must go into a false god's temple with his master, with his king. And who put the king of Syria over Naaman? Yahweh did. And so Naaman's like, look, when I go in that temple, as the right hand of the man of whom you appointed over me, forgive me, pardon your servant for his faithfulness in this matter. I will worship you. I'm giving you all the offerings. When I go in there, it's only to be obedient to the king of Syria. His heart will not bow down to these false gods. So Naaman, he seeks to live faithfully and obedient to what has been revealed to him about Yahweh. And this is the hard part for the believer. This is the hard part for us, right? The simple part is being justified. The hard part is walking in obedience. As the world around you continues to tempt you, continues to remind you, Hey, you're a leper, or you are a leper. Remember what it's like? Remember your sins? And the world tries to draw you away. That's the hard thing. Naaman's request and concern that we see here is a small one compared to what you and I have to deal with. Naaman only has part of God's revelation. We have the full revelation of God. We have the new covenant. We know exactly how we are called to live. However, we have something that Naaman did not have, and that's to our advantage. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit that Naaman could not have, did not have, but we do. The Spirit that Christ has sent to dwell within us, something that all members of the New Covenant have, thus giving us the power to live free of our sin, to where we don't have to give in to temptation, where we don't have to succumb to it. We have the power to live righteous lives as we are called to. And note Elisha's response to Naaman's request. Elisha, the mouthpiece of God, doesn't rebuke him for it. He doesn't even correct Naaman, saying, hey, no, you must flee your king. You need to go find something else to do, lest the wrath of God break out upon you. No, he says, go in peace. Now, how can Elisha say that? Well, the text doesn't explicitly tell us, but we can infer a couple of things. One, Naaman is not under the law. Right? He's a Gentile. He's not, even part of, he's not even a Gentile who has journeyed to Israel and wants to be part of the covenant community. He's not even part of the covenant community. Second, 
Naaman has confessed he will offer burnt offerings to Yahweh and that he will not worship other gods with his heart. Only in appearance is necessary to satisfy the king of Syria. See, Naaman's heart, he has been cleansed. He is near Yahweh, and Yahweh knows this. Once his heart was far off, but now in faith it is near, and no temple or king of Syria will cause him to wander. If it would, surely God, out of love for his servant, Naaman, would tell Elisha, no, give him, say such and such. But he doesn't. Elisha, the mouthpiece of God, says, go in peace. And so in peace he goes. And note the other, another thing, the last thing about Elisha's response to Naaman. Notice he doesn't tell Naaman, hey, this time next year, make sure you return to the river Jordan and dip seven times. You got to keep this up. Or when you sin again, lest you fall away from God, dip again another seven times. He doesn't say that. And it's the same for us. As much as Naaman did not need to repeat the act to be cleansed, once we are cleansed by the blood of Christ, there's no need to be cleansed again. There's no need to be re-baptized. If you are baptized in faith once, that's enough. This is why we do communion weekly. Right? We don't need to be re-baptized over and over again. There's no need to say another special prayer with specific words to get right with Christ. There's no need to make a vow of silence or go on or endure a quest of unrelenting hardship to atone for your sins. There's no need to make what is light heavy, what is simple complicated. This is God's grace. This is the beauty of it. We must not arrogantly think that the Son of God could be crucified another time. That that is what heathens, that is what heretics believe, that, well, I sinned, so Christ, he died once for my sin, and that's just once, and it wasn't for all my sins, so we need, to, we, we need to have him offer himself again, right? Essentially what happens at Catholic Mass. Thinking that the first time when Christ said it is finished, that it wasn't enough. And thus he must offer himself over and over again as you constantly sin over and over and over again. But once we have been washed by his Spirit, we are made clean forever, Right? We are clothed in his righteousness. Once God puts his righteousness on you, right? he's the all-knowing, all-perfect, all-wise God. He's not going to give you his righteousness only for you to soil it. He's going to give you his righteousness, and you're going to keep his righteousness, and he's going to keep you. He holds you fast. Right? We are in the hand of the Father and the Son, and they, no one can snatch you from them. It's an, it's an eternal gift, an everlasting, never-ending gift, not a gift that's temporary or dependent on certain conditions. Whoever believes in the Son of God shall have this. Naaman's experience here is an indictment against the Israelites, and a harsh one, because here we have a Gentile that has shown greater faith than those who were delivered out of Egypt by the hand of God, than those who have witnessed the works of Elisha, the works of Elisha, and the works of the other prophets. This Gentile Syrian, he's healed once and he believes. This is one of the reasons that when Jesus references this event in Luke 4 and verse 27, it angers the men of Nazareth. Right? Because he's like, look, there are many lepers in the land of Israel in the, in the days of Elisha, but none of them were healed except for the Gentile, for the Syrian leper, Naaman. And that angered them because they knew what he was getting at. Israel had been unfaithful despite what God had done for them. 
But it's not just Naaman that highlights the unfaithfulness of Israel in our chapter. An Israelite close to Elisha does so as well. Verses 19 through 27, let's read. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As Yahweh lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But Elisha said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So Gehazi went out from his presence, a leper like snow. So here, the servant of the man of God, he seeks to gain, he seeks to exploit the situation for his own selfish ambition. Gehazi, he's close to Elisha, and he should have known better. Imagine if Elisha had done this during the days of Elijah, when Elisha served Elisha, all right? It's the same situation that's going on here. But Elisha, he is the faithful man of God. Gehazi, he is not. Gehazi, he goes off, he deceives this new, precious convert. He also tries to deceive Elisha. And thus, by trying to deceive Elisha, he's essentially trying to deceive Yahweh. These actions are sourced in the demonic and not from the above. You would have to wonder if this is the situation that James is thinking of in James 3, 14, 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That's what Gehazi did here to the T. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Gehazi's actions reflect the true nature of his unbelieving, unfaithful heart, and therefore was made like Naaman once was when he was unbelieving. For the heart of Gehazi was unclean, thus he was made visibly unclean. See, the walls of his whitewashed tomb were made to reveal the stain of death that he tried so hard, so desperate to conceal. Gehazi, he serves as a warning not only to Israel, but to those of you today who think that by proximity or by the company that you keep, you will enter into the kingdom. Such thinking is trusting any type of work. Your work of how well connected you are, or perhaps for some of you, you think, well, I serve the church hard. I endure hardship for the church. Thus, surely, I will be granted into the kingdom. Note, Gehazi was as close to, to God as anyone could have been in Israel. He served the great man of God, Elisha. And yet, the spirit, spiritually speaking, the slave-owning, Gentile, Syrian commander was nearer to God 
than he was. I mean, day in, day out, Gehazi was at Elisha's feet. And yet he walked away as the leper. And the one who only met Elisha once actually didn't see Elisha face to face until after he was cured is closer to God than Gehazi. Some of you, though you have been near those who are in Christ, you are far from Christ. You are like a whitewashed tomb. By all appearances, you seem clean, you seem pure, but your inside is rotten to the core. Your heart is diseased, and you think simply by your presence amongst God's people, by what you do, you will make it in the end. But don't be so foolish. Don't be so arrogant. God's speaking sovereignly to you now through his word about this. The goats will be separated from the sheep, the weeds will be gathered from the wheat, and they will be cast into the eternal fires of hell. Scripture is not quiet on this matter. But, Scripture is also not quiet on this matter either. But God, God is gracious. God is merciful. Despite your evil, despite your addiction, despite your love for that bottle, despite for your love for whatever is wrong and unholy, you can be made clean. You don't need to wait until you're done with your addiction or until you've completed the 12 steps. You don't need to wait for anything. You just need to say right now, I'm done. I need healing. Father, help me. Jesus, help me. I put my trust, my faith in you and let him take over. And you will be made clean. You will be made pure. You will be made right before God, our judge. So that when you are called before him, whether when he returns or he calls you home, and he asks you, how do you plead before him? You may respond with this. I plead Christ. I plead Christ. And we do this because Christ is our advocate. 1 John 2.1 If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because he is the Lamb of God who has bore our sin. Isaiah 53.6 All we like sheep have gone astray. Right? Again, all of us have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's Christ. He's the atoning, he's the atonement, he's the atoning sacrifice. John 129, John the Baptist even says this: Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And no, he doesn't say, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world if you say this, if you do this, if you partake in this. No. You just need to believe in him. He's also, Jesus is the one who pleads for us. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, Christ is able to save the uttermost. To save to the uttermost. That means to the very ends. That forever, that no matter completely, Christ is able to save those who draw near to God. How? Through a particular work? No. Through him and him alone. Faith in him. Christ is able to save them completely, wholly, not partially, right? It's not like, well, Christ saves up until this point, and then he empowers you to do the rest. No. Christ saves you completely to where he does it all for you. And we do that through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. That's what he's doing for us right now at the right hand of the Father, pleading for us, interceding for us. Because he is the one who has paid it all. He is the one who has bled for your sin, for my sin, for our sin. 
We just need to be like Naaman, who in his leprosy turned from his anger. Right? He heard the word initially. He's like, ah, I don't like this. And so he went away his anger, but his servants encouraged him, and he turned, he repented from his anger, he turned from his ways of doing things, and he heeded the word of God, and in faith he dipped himself in the river Jordan. We too in our sin must turn from our way of doing things. We must hear the word of God and go to Christ in faith, who is our river Jordan, and thus be washed and cleansed by his Spirit. And for those of you who have been washed, those of you who have been sanctified, those of you who have been made clean, do not forget the days of your leprosy. And that can be easy to forget sometimes. It can be easy that we were once lepers, that we too were once sinners. Remember when you were an addict. Remember when you were an idolater, a homosexual, an adulterer, a glutton, a sloth. Remember those days, and remember of which you are no longer these things, right? It's in part why we forget them. But consider how you were made clean, how you were justified by grace alone. And treat those who are still in their sin with the same grace, the same patience, the same love. Just as you were unable to clean yourself up before God, you are unable to clean anyone else. Do not think simply because you have been saved, you now have the power to save others. You don't. You have the word. You can point them to the one who does, but you yourself, you can't control others. You are unable to make the blind see, nor can you melt the heart of stone or change the leper's spots. Only Christ can do that. But Christ has called you. Be my witness. Bear this testimony. Go. Tell them of who I am. So pray for them. Stop leading with morality. Stop trying to get people to get clean before they come to Christ. Lead with Christ. Have Christ clean them first and then help them live in obedience. But don't start with morality. Don't say, well, you got to clean yourself up. No, you need to know, go, you need to know Christ. You need to come to Christ first. Know him so that you may know your sin. Because he's our motive. His righteousness is what motivates us to holiness. If we deny this, all the morality in the world is not going to save you. You're just going to make your life hard and you're going to end up in hell. So that's why we start with Christ. So speak of his blood. Speak of his mercy. Speak of how easy his yoke is and how light the burden is that he places on us. And we do this for his glory, by his grace, for our good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. Thank you for this account of Naaman that it was written down and recorded for us, that we can be encouraged by this, Father. Father, you know our hearts here. You know those of us who are walking faithfully with you in your Son and those who are far from you. But Father, you have, you have created this moment before us. You, you have allowed these words to go forth for people to hear, to receive, and right now, some of their hearts, they are being cut. They, they feel the Spirit convicting them and leading them. And for those who don't, Father, and need to be, you ask that the Spirit would, by your power, by your grace, open their eyes so that they can see, that they will be convicted of their sin. And so, Father, we ask that you would guide us into the truth, into the light. You would speak to each and every one of us according, in accordance to uh, our hearts where we are with you, Father, for your glory. Help us to be faithful in this and help us to be gracious towards one, excuse me, one another. 
Help us to pray for one another. Help us to love one another and be patient towards one another. Help us to remember what you have done for us by the work of your Son. How you have made us clean. How you have made us right before you. How you have justified us forever by sending your Son to die on the cross in our place to suffer the wrath that was reserved for us. Help us to remember Calvary daily. Help us to consider the gospel all the time so that we can share that and we can rejoice in that and we can faithfully live our lives as we are called to. Father, we ask that you would allow, that you would bless uh, the elements before us here at the table. That you'd bless the bread and the cup. That we know that they don't save us, but they remind us of what your son has done. They remind us of who we are in him. They remind us of our baptism and that we are a new creation. They remind us that your son is, is going to return one day to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. That he's going to restore all things and raise the dead. So, Father, we ask that as we come to the table that you would convict our souls of any sins that we may not be aware of, that we would confess them, and upon confession that we would receive the joy of what it means to be pardoned, the joy of what it means to be forgiven, and that we would rejoice in this celebration as we anxiously await the return of your Son, or anxiously await us being called home so that we would live faithful and holy lives. And we ask that you would empower us with the Spirit, that you would help us to be filled by the Spirit to faithfully do this work. Father, again, just thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And know that all that we, we, all, all that we desire to do this morning and the days to come is to glorify you. We thank you when you are faithful, when we are faithless. We thank you that though we, we sin, we stumble, we still have an advocate, and we will always have an advocate that pleads for us. We thank you, Father, for your Son, and we thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for us. We ask these things, Father, in the name of, for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name and the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. At this time, we'll enter into communion. Um, if you are a believer in Christ and you're not walking unrepentant,